This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. You, you're beautiful. Okay, hi. Hey, what's going on, everybody? We just laughing. Hey, yes, uh, happy everything. We are uh, in community, in class. I was um, telling you that, uh, you know, uh, what the title of today is, but I, you know, I stayed up late watching uh, Francis Tiafo. Is that how you? I'm so happy to see that brother. Hey, he's from the DMV, PG. By way of Sierra Leone, and no I was question, about, no question. Because uh, yesterday on the show, on my radio show, I, I ran through every single country that uh, England, uh, Great Britain, had colonized, and come on now, uh, teach, I, teach. I, I ran out of breath because I'm like. <laughs> Everybody, everybody, everybody that we know, everybody that we know, everybody. And yesterday, you know, um, yeah, black thoughts, every goddamn body, everybody, <laughs> everybody. And, <laughs> and I was also thinking the very thing that created whiteness, which was the fear that the indentured uh, servants from Ireland and the Africans that were in bondage would come together because they were because they were in the same condition. And they were like, hey, you my enemy. They were like, wait a minute, hold up, hold up, hold up. Oh, okay, wait, you're white. Here's a police badge. <laughs> it's like you know, that, and that in itself, just in passing, is fascinating because the Irish, very different in Ireland than here. They come here and get whiteness. But when Frederick Douglass goes there in 1846, 1846, 1847, he and then Charles Lennox Remond and other black abolitionists from the US court the favor of the Irish. And the Irish are very, very supportive. And then the Irish raised the question of England. And they said, okay, American Negroes, so we supporting y'all. So what y'all going to get on us versus England? Douglas and them went mute. Why? Because they wanted the British support to end abolition too. So those very Irish who are fighting against the British there and supporting the Blacks, when their people get on the boats and come here, they realize, oh, the game has changed. Whiteness is a crazy thing. It's interesting you raised that because well, here that, that racism doesn't go back to the island in the same way. It's fascinating. And because of England, because of England. Wow. Well, I mean, I only raised it because I was like, oh, this death might have brought the very thing together that would have upended uh, imperialism to begin with, which is the Irish and the Black people getting together on Twitter. Irish Twitter and Black Twitter were in solidarity, and it was, um, <laughs> it was could a lot talk, of things. Could you talk a little bit about that? I saw, I saw a little bit of it, but of course, the, the, the young people saw all of it. What in the world? What was that? Nonstop. They had river dancing. They had. I mean, it was, no, it was nonstop. It was nonstop. The memes and the gifts and the videos, and it, it was just nonstop. And there was a point where I was like, "Who is this?" Is this appropriate? <laughs> yeah, there's a decorum. Actually, Roland uh, quoted you Thursday night when we were on the show, on his show, his daily show, and he 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 put up a tweet from you that uh, where you where you expressed that, and it wasn't a reservation. I mean, there is a protocol. We are human beings, after all. And he drew a distinction between that and then coming back, like, yeah, but hey, <laughs> it is what it is. Well, so we're, we're playing on many fronts. We're fighting on many fronts. Yeah, we are. And Twitter's social structure all day long. Whatever we do in our homes, in our governance spaces is our business. 
but we're playing multiple, uh, we, we have multiple fights. And I'm like, you know, uh, we, we can do all things, but mm, mm, publicly, yeah, no. But, so, yeah. Yeah, but I think you're raising a very, in fact, I think if there's nothing else, we set aside anything else we're going to talk about in these few minutes we have today. The lesson, not the lesson, the inflection point. There are very few inflection points. This is an inflection point. I think you're raising the issue. The, the tenuous grip of empire on our imaginations, it has been eroding. It was never firm, but it has been eroding. This death, we might look back and say, this was an inflection point. I, I even tweeted, um, had she did if she didn't wait so long, like has she gone 20 years ago, 15 years ago, she would have had the send off of a lifetime. But she waited too long for people to remember the things we're doing for the last two years, um, having a global community coming together, sharing these thoughts. Well, like, wait a minute, that happened to you, that happened to you, that happened to you, you know, Jamaica. Like I went to Jamaica like 15, 20 years ago. It was different this year going to Jamaica. They they are like, mm, yeah, you know, they would jump over me to get to the Europeans oh, 15, sure. 20 years ago. Sure. Now it's like my sister. We see what's happening with um, you know, Barbados, even Bermuda. Like there's they're all Absolutely. open, like mm, this this crown. No, we we wear the crown. As a matter of fact, that crown stolen. Give me that back. India. Give me that back. Biggest diamond she got, the African diamond. Yes, run me back my jewels. Run you know? me the, run the jewels. So <laughs> run yeah. the jewels. Although, I mean, yeah, um, I don't know though. I mean, this the technology has changed. We, we've never been not been aware of each other, but this technology has weaponized it. And some of it is is generational, I think. I mean, you know, the elders, there are many of us in the African world, in the world period. So we ain't gonna leave out any of the victims of British Empire, India, Pakistan, you name it, you know, Sri Lanka, Australia, Aboriginal people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are many of us who remember when there was no Queen Elizabeth. It may not seem, I mean, 1952 is a long time, but it ain't that long. In other words, your parents, your mom was born before 1952. My mom was born from 1950. In other words, uh, that generation that lived the age of empire, there's a certain, and I remember, and I know this every time we've gone to South Africa and, you know, generally, but when I go to South Africa, I really try to get young people involved in this conversation. I sit there and listen to them. The respect that South Africans, young people had for Madiba, half and Nelson Mandela was rock solid, but that was not the attitude they took toward what was going to happen when Madiba made transition. And what you see there now is like the economic freedom fighters put out a message. They roasted the queen. In other words, because look, look, we respected Madiba, but you can go to hell. Now, when he's gone, we're going to settle up. And I think that's part of the energy now. It, it, they always knew, but I respect my Nana. She got a picture of the queen on the wall. I don't know why. I understand. It's all good. I love you. No problem. Wait, she gone? Let's get that now. Run me my In other words, <laughs> for her. Because you messed her mind up. In other words, it's very interesting in the governance formations. You know what I'm saying? That's fascinating. Hmm. And then some governance talk gets strays over into the social structure. I mean, uh, Professor Anya at Carnegie Mellon, who they've tried to crucify, but they should not do that. Leave you leave that sister alone. She's Igbo. She's from Nigeria. Three million Igbos lost their lives in the Brothers' War, in the Biafran War. So when she tweeted what she said, that she hoped that. Uh, 
you know, that woman had a torturous end. Y'all came for her, including Jeff Bezos. Hey, bro, your mouth, shut it. How many did you lose, pimp? How many did you lose while you're trying to stop unions from unionizing? So, the, I mean, she expressed the feeling of millions. Don't be coming in Nigerians. I ain't talking about these little <laughs> booty kissing uh, statements that the president of Ghana put out and uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, who we'll talk about in a minute, put out all the Africa, all the people in the comment. And I'm talking about the rank and file people. You see the smoke from the Biafra war ain't never clear. I mean, Chimamanda Adichie came to our prominence when she wrote Half of a Yellow Sun. That's about the Biafra war. The last book Chinua Achebe wrote before he made transition, there was a country talking about Biafra. So you don't stray over there with Professor Anya. You get away from Uja Anya. She evil. You go to hell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But she couldn't hold it in. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That governance came in, you know? So, and, and we were the reason it was so personal for her because, as she said, Britain backed that mess. And the queen is not only the head of state and nation, she the head of the military and was the first ruler in a thousand years to serve active duty. So, let's be clear she took great pride in being a warrior. So, if you want to be a warrior, no problem. But we're gonna meet on the battlefield. I ain't gonna pretend like you ain't do what you did. Never forget what her husband said on the way out of here. So you know, anyway, is that just I'm, I'm actually gonna drop this uh tweet from the economic freedom fighters into mm. <laughs> I read that on the air too. Uh, did did you did you read the <laughs> yeah. that is wow? <laughs> I was like, okay, All right. you know, listen, feel however you feel, but I, I do feel like there is to me, it's just real simple. I can, you know, the, the saying, you know, hate the sin, sinner, not the sin, hate mm -hmm. the sin, not the sinner. You know, we we will today, and and we should always chronicle all the things. So when I tweeted that, someone said, "Oh, so you're not gonna celebrate when Donald Trump is?" You know, I was like, "No," because the problems, his passing's not gonna free us. No, the, the 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 corrosive element that created this country and this this you know um, car crash, this this. Um, demonic force that uh has has prevailed for the last 400 years won't leave with him but if that's the case let me know i know hitler died we still got nazis in america today some some even were in the white house so i you know celebrating right. the death is not going to change our condition what no, are we why i mean it's it's sensitive though i think i don't celebrate it and we have to have a certain as we know in that framework we have to have a certain um we don't have to do anything, but it, it probably accrues to our collective benefit to have recognize always our common humanity. And that's very difficult. As we all read together in Nubia, um, where do we go from here? As Martin Luther King is, is examining that and we chewed through that together and thought about that, you know, there is a certain very important grounded human dimension to not celebrating. At the same time, there are also wars. You know, so when Haile Selassie in 1935 is run out of Ethiopia by Benito Mussolini and goes to the League of Nations and says, until the philosophy that holds one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war. That, sent, that speech that Bob Marley takes that song from, he ends up in exile in England in Leeds, I think it was, from 1935 to 1941, England was propping up Mussolini. So I'm saying that mustard gas and all that stuff y'all dropped on them Ethiopians, some damn British, 
that gave exile to the leader in Ethiopia, himself a bloodline emperor. Y'all was helping them people. So, I mean, they, they, we should recognize our common humanity, but at the same time, what do we do with the reality that it wasn't just Kiki, it ain't all Kiki, it's a lot of dead people in the world because of oh. the empire, you know what I'm saying? And she and she had her hand on titular head of state for a great deal of it. Absolutely. But again, to upend, to, to follow the, the trail laid by Selassie, you know, we have to fight the ideals, right? We have to fight. We have to pull up the root of this thing. Right. And so again, like if you is cathartic, get it out. Like, mm. like at the end of the day, I feel like we spend a lot of time in catharsis, <laughs> a lot of time in yeah. strategy. Like, I mean, or else we wouldn't be sitting here every every Saturday. We would be somewhere on a beach because we'd be all free. Because that's the goal, right? The goal is everybody listening to have their own agency to be able to go out into the world to determine themselves, not based on any amount of melanin that they have. So what's what's the strategy for that? Like, okay, the queen is dead. Ding dong, the queen is dead. Now you got to Where are we going? Are y'all going to disband, disband the monarchy? That should happen. So right. what are people in Great Britain doing about that? Because I think we all agree we don't need kings and queens anymore, right? So like, what's the goal? Well, you know, that's interesting. I was just looking at a... Oh man, I don't know what I did with it. I had a, it was a journal, um, an issue of race and class. I don't know what I did with it. But at any rate, the author was talking about how do we talk about national memory? Really, what really what this raises again, and this is the perfect thing to do it. Uh, thanks, Elizabeth, for doing this because we all got to go that way when you went that way. Dying two weeks ago. Um, Nobody knew. All right, go ahead. Right, exactly. Well, this is, this is the thing, right? I mean, we, but, you know, she is not just the head of state, as we know. She's the, she and now her son, the head of nation. And so the, the the real thing that this raises for us in terms of an opportunity, another real thing it does, is to examine and re-examine the question of nation. You know, territories that humans live in the social organization of the last millennium, last thousand years, really the last 500, not even all of that, has been the state, the Western concept of state. These are the things we all have to learn on our knees as if we are going to church, which in some forms we are, from kindergarten through our dying day, in terms of formal education, Magna Carta and uh, you know Rousseau and John Locke and Adam Smith, as if these are somehow the tablets that have been given down to us through time by these brilliant Europeans. And even the critiques of this formation, whether it be Karl Marx or Engels or Lenin, you know, the, the, the genealogy, the, the thing that Jacob Carruthers reminds us that we must somehow step away from long enough to have a conversation with ourselves. What he says, you know, all the things we had to learn from kindergarten, first grade, elementary school, junior high, middle school, high school. You know, we know these things, the three branches of government, as if that's how everybody organizes their government. What? And so then we start looking within ourselves and our own formations, human social formations, to see how we match up and how we can improve so that it becomes a seamless thing for us to say, well, we all want democracy. Really? What's democracy? You know, democracy is when, and then that's when the definitions diverge. Why? Because no, no, you learn that word. And as Jacob Carruthers said, you know, we should we should stop setting up an interview schedule with the great conversations of Europeans. 
not because there aren't some incredible ideas and some great contributions to our common humanity, but because there are many others, in fact, more others than there are those. But it is the stamp of empire. And, you know, they got they got a calm, they got a, a, you know, a little, a little softer word for it now in the English language, which is borrowed from the French, you know, commonwealth. <laughs> commonwealth is just a polite way of saying it, the echo of empire. The sequel to empire to to take uh Carter G. Woodson's phrase when he calls uh segregation the sequel to slavery, Jim Crow the sequel to slavery. We can call Commonwealth the sequel to empire, but nation is really at the center of that. Nation from the Latin nasi meaning to be born. Another loan word, because remember the English were colonized by what we now know as the French, and before that, the Romans, Roman Britain, so to speak. And and, and so they, their rise is really a rise of the last 400 years or so that intensifies really over the last 150 years, I mean, and really the last century. So the age of uh, Elizabeth II is really, you know, she inherits a crown at a moment when that empire in some ways has peaked and then she presides over the slow dissolution. So what we have at this moment where her transition is a powerful symbol, uh, Prof, to your question, to your observation about the nature of catharsis and the nature of catharsis of course is is release something that has been constrained or pent up something that has not been confronted something that has that has, now has to be revealed what is it underneath our condition that must now be revealed and so there is something very cathartic when you have a symbol that has been propped up through continuity and tradition by an ongoing criminal enterprise to, to 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 personify literally personify the soul of a nation and a nation is a made-up idea but that not only the soul of a nation but the animating soul of a nation that, it, that that then is fused to a form of social organization that does not emerge in global history until very recently, and that is the state. I'm always encouraging uh, our students to think, you know, when we say, well, the nation state, pause. There are two words there. Do they mean the same thing? No, they do not. The state is the rules the social organization, the nation is the concept, the idea. So when Joe Biden says that there's a fight for the soul of America, of course that should break out in immediate laughter. This country has no soul. The United States of America in many ways is the Frankenstein monster of Western empire. It is indeed a car crash between all of those colonies. So it's important to remember that. You know, it's important to remember that in 1606, James I, James I, uh gives out a division after these british have come over there and they had been over there by the uh by the 16th century sir walter raleigh who we all had to learn still people in raleigh north carolina got his damn name on them tobacco look at it that was the colony of roanoke as in roanoke virginia yeah roanoke in other words that colony didn't last then james the first comes back 1606 and gives a charter and says you know north of Virginia and south of Virginia, he divides it between two companies. There is the, the Virginia company that gets the southern part that become those colonies. And then the northern part is the uh is the Plymouth Company. These are companies. 
These are business enterprises and an attempts by the British crown to, you know, to, to profit off of invasion. So the first thing we do with the passing of Queen Elizabeth is to remember she's Elizabeth II. She's Elizabeth II. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of people. I'd open up my app now and see in the chat whether people, I know there's a lot of people who know who Elizabeth I was. Well, you should. She was known as, uh, who was she known as? Oh, the Virgin Queen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Virgin Queen. Virgin. Oh, Virgi Virgin Virginia named for Elizabeth I. Elizabeth II just passed. Continuity, the idea of nation. I joke all the time. Anytime I have to go somewhere or, or have a morning presentation or conversation I'm having, I'm sitting here as an addict with my coffee and sugar. And I say, y'all don't mind if I sip my coffee and sugar, do you? Because this, after all, this is the reason that we're here in this conversation speaking in English. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just, you know um, I've, I've heard this many, many, many times, particularly in Nubia, you know, people of a certain age just being really angry at the lack of education. You know, the dots you just connected from Virginia to Raleigh, those of us who live in places didn't even imagine the direct link. And I keep asking, like, why are we obsessed with England? Did we fight a whole ass war to, to, to throw off the yoke of imperialism? <laughs> That's what they taught us, ain't it? Yeah. But as, as if we was fighting with the Americans and not with the British. Cool. Gerald Horn wrote all kind of books about that. Right. What are we? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank Who you. Who is we? Hey, thank Who you. I'm popping into that. No, no, no. This is, this is the thing. I mean, because, of course, we know 1607, James I. The settlement that that is founded there, in that southern half of that division on the on the north uh, on, on the, on the uh, Atlantic seaboard, they found Jamestown, right? Jamestown, Virginia, to Virgin Queen Elizabeth the First. Now, he keeps giving out stuff. 1632, he gives a grant to his friend uh, George Calvert. George Calvert also has a, a royal title, Lord Baltimore. That would be. Maryland, what? Yeah, Maryland. You see, Maryland. You know, but now, now, of course, there are a lot of Marys. Mary, Queen of Scots. Wait a minute, Elizabeth II, Scottish man. Yeah, yeah. Well, she wants to be queen anyway. We'll get there because again, continuity in this tradition. There's a catharsis that we are not only we 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 should not only sit with, we should embrace because that catharsis might finally allow us to speak. As I said, that article I was just reading. It's an older issue of Race and Class, and I know I had that. Um, it's a journal that comes out of Great Britain. You know, I have so many of them around here. I probably left it over there with the with the with the with the run of the journal. But the author was talking about when do we get to talk about if you're gonna talk about the soul of a country and values, because the other thing the regent does, the monarch does, is represent the values, like countries have values, right? And this person is writing and saying, Okay, let's say countries have values, which I don't accept, but let's just stipulate, let's just say that they they, they do. So then when do you say, because we live in this thing, got pulled in this against our will, our values, when do our values become part of those values? In other words, so the example you give in the so-called American Revolution, there were at least as many African people who fought for the British, who fought for then fought for George Washington. And in Virginia alone, several orders of mul multiples of thousands ran away, maybe as many as 30,000. In other words, we didn't care who won that war. We fighting for us then and now. So when you try to stitch it together like this Frankenstein monster called the United States of America by trying to write ourselves into a narrative, even by complicating the narrative, as this author was saying, 
I will give y'all the citation. Maybe I'll do it later in Nubia because we're going to talk about this Monday night because obviously we're a global family and I cannot wait to hear from all uh, like you can't. I mean, we, we, we got Africans all over the globe. So this conversation we're going to have about Commonwealth on Monday night. I can during all those hours. I can't wait to hear, you know, Osnam and Soja and them and everybody, you know, all the victims. Because, you know, this is uh this is an important conversation. But anyway, the. Stitching together a narrative of nation, the author is like, well, when do our values come in? Because we were the Blue Mountain Maroons in Jamaica. We were fighting y'all in Barbados. We had a whole ass turn up in Jamaica. That one of the things that pushed you closer to emancipation, which, by the way, was compensated emancipation. The British uh, ended enslavement and people talk about, see, Great Britain ended enslavement. Yeah. Was it Eric Williams? I'm trying to remember in capitalism and slavery. It might have been Eric Williams, of course, first prime minister of Trinidad in Tobago who wrote maybe it was in capitalism and slavery who said sometimes it seemed like the British created slavery so that they could take credit for abolishing it <laughs> but anyway because they always talk about we abolished slavery yeah it's, it's much more complicated than that but in the abolition of enslavement it was compensated emancipation same thing Abraham Lincoln pulled on a much tinier scale here in Washington DC when in, in 1862 he said you know Everybody who's enslaved in D.C., we will free y'all and we're going to pay these white people for every black body that's freed. And we're going to set aside one hundred thousand dollars in case you Negroes want to leave the country. All you Lincoln fans, this ain't, you know, in the words of this T-shirt. Nah, nah, uh, nah. But in England, Prof, that debt was not paid off. They borrowed. The government borrowed from private funds, private people, banks private entities that debt was paid off for the paying all the englishmen and not just the englishmen anybody who had any investments you had people who had money they had invested in the ships that came and got us i'm talking about regular ass people i ain't never enslaved nobody yeah but didn't you put three shillings on that boat lady i know you're a washerwoman but you got some investment return right so we're gonna pay you too that debt was finally retired and it was 2015 mm. So that means black people, <laughs> black people living in England, Indians living in England. What um my man Emmanuel Geis, I say my man, I never knew him. He gone before I ever, but he wrote an interesting book called on Pan-Africanism many years ago. And I remember in the first few pages, he 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 talks about something a lot of people talk about, but I read it first with Emmanuel Geis on Pan-Africanism. Got the boomerang effect. When you create an empire, you reach out for people. And then you realize, oh, I can't let them go. Wait, where you going? Oh, you crawling my arm? Wait, 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 you on my shoulder? Oh, you on my face? <laughs> yeah, England looks like the people you went and colonized. So all them people who pay taxes, they've been paying for the emancipation of their ancestors when the money went to the slave owners. And guess who never got a dime? Which is why my man, Hillary McBeckles, wrote this book, Britain's Black Debt. I encourage y'all to get that. Britain's Black Debt, Reparations for Caribbean Slavery and Native Genocide. Uh, this is the book that came out in 2013 that prompted one of the black members of parliament to say he was going to the queen and ask for an apology. And Elizabeth gave that apology. That apology came, wait. <laughs> I hear you, Prof Anya. I ain't mad at you. It's very cathartic what she said. Now she catching hell for it, but it's very cathartic. You know that the first black members of the UK parliament were elected to office in 1987. 1987. This is my first year of law school. I was a grown ass man. 
please understand, this ain't ancient history. McBeckles wrote that book in 2013. MP was like, yo, I'm going to ask about it. But let's 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 sum up this uh, 13 colonies because we'll tie all this stuff back together in a second. Uh, Lord Baltimore wanted Maryland to be in some ways a haven for Catholics because, you know, there's a hot beef between Catholics. And that's part of the reason that James is claiming this territory, because he can't go all the way down to the Caribbean, although they got Jamaica and all them. They took that from the Spanish because Spain still got Florida, you see. And, you know, after James, uh, Charles II in 1664 says we got to create some space between New England and Virginia. And so uh, the New England part, of course, that was the northern part for those companies. In fact, uh, you, uh, the, Plymouth Colony, the Plymouth Corporation, right, company. So you had, of course, Rhode Island and all those other places, Massachusetts. Massachusetts is the first colony with an, an indigenous word as its name. So, you know, that's a Native American word, Massachusetts. But when you start going south, you know, Charles II said, Charles II said, we're going to create some space here. So then he starts giving out land. He gave a bunch of land in 1664 to his friend James. His friend James was the Duke of York. The Duke of York. The Dutch had been in that territory. And you know where we're going with this. That's New York but they took it from the Dutch, New Amsterdam. That's Charles II, Charles II, Charles II. Now this boy who's a man, who's uh, just assumed the throne, Charles is now King Charles, right? King Charles, uh, what is he? Charles the 15th, Charles the, what is he, Professor? Is he what number is he? Charles the third, the third. Charles the third, okay, Charles the second, the one created New York. Let's just tie some things together. So your mama, was named for the Virgin Queen Virginia named for, and you named for the guy that made up New York. And then a little later gave some property to another friend of his, William Penn, who then divided it with his friend and that became New Jersey. See, we see New in front of something on the <laughs> seaboard as England. We having this conversation, this raggedy ass English language, which was propped up by Latin based language, French. Many of the words we use in English, really French long words, because they were colonized by the French. In fact, when the Romans were up there, John Henry Clark used to say this all the time, and, and I believed it, but of course I got to go verify, I read it for myself. So when you read uh, the Caesar's um, uh, journals of the Rome, of the conquest, when they went up into those islands, you know, there's a comment that basically amounts to these people so stupid, they wouldn't even make good slaves. You're talking about the British, the Romans, <laughs> you see, but they got their language propped up a little bit. With a uh, with Latin base, so Charles II, that's New York, that's Pennsylvania, that's New Jersey, and then in the next century, 1729, they create. Well, 1729 is when they split, because now they're going south, but they can't get they don't they don't want to rub up against Florida, so they create this space called Carolina. Carol, what was Carolina named for? Caroline? No. It's a female gloss. Charles. Maybe King Charles will come see the state's name for him. North and South. I love black people call it North and South Kakalaki. <laughs> At least you <laughs> ebonicized the name. Charles. The second. And then, of course, they got a place where they dump the riffraff that they don't want on, in, in, in the, um, on the island. 
and we should pause here to talk about the difference between great britain england and the united kingdom just i mean i know everybody most people know but there's some children probably who there's always some children watching and so in fact i know that we we know there are great britain is you know great britain is made up of the island and the main island right but great britain would include those thousands of others almost six thousand islands little islands around but great britain is the island the united kingdom that's Northern Ireland, that's Wales, that's Scotland and England together, right? North, North, Northern Ireland, because the Irish, uh, the Irish Republic, the Republic of Ireland, not part of the United Kingdom. And then England is like the label you can use for any or all of it, depending on where you want to talk about, right? So we talk about the UK. Now, we'll, we, in a minute, we'll talk about the Commonwealth, the Voluntary Commonwealth of Nations, which is like 50, I think, six countries. Yeah, because two joined, they ain't had nothing to do with it including Rwanda. Why you join? Remember, Prof, uh, was that this year or last year when uh, England, the UK was trying to stop people from coming up there, immigrants, and then they made a deal with Paul Kagame and them in uh, Rwanda to send immigrants to Rwanda. And a lot of people, including all us Africans, was screaming bloody murder. Like, why would you do that, man? Why would you? Rwanda joined the damn Commonwealth of Nations voluntarily. That's not the fourteen. They're in the Commonwealth. <laughs> we talking about these voluntary people, and they say we don't have a hereditary head, but they they elected Charles in 2018 to be the head of the Commonwealth. So you know, nation is a powerful idea. Catharsis is something that we should not stop on, but it catharsis does give us a, a chance to speak what's on our mind, like Prof Anya did, and perhaps shock ourselves to action. Because as Nguyuatiango writes in Something Torn and New, which I pulled, I have Howard students read this every semester in my intro class. And uh, Prof Nguyi came when we were, uh, we came when the book first came out. We we had him come when we did freshman seminar. Uh, and I'm, I can't resist uh, pausing here again to shout out Ruben Patterson and the people in the College of Arts and Sciences for relieving me of that duty. I get to do so much more here, so much more important. Shout out, brother. Uh, but Nguyi, writes about, in fact, let me just read what Ngugi says at the beginning of this book, which is four essays based on speeches he delivered. He said, there's no region, no culture, no nation today that has not been affected by colonialism and its aftermath. He is Kenyan, by the way. So he is a victim of the British. He says, indeed, modernity can be considered a product of colonialism. This book speaks to the decolonization of modernity. And that's what we were talking about now. So what is to be done is we must now seize this moment and continue the work of decolonizing modernity. The passing of Elizabeth II gives us an inflection point so that catharsis then can be poured into ongoing efforts to decolonize modernity. In other words, to erase, you can't erase it, but to renegotiate the terms of our common humanity by now saying we're not going to continue to bow down at your feet. We must now act in our interests, which are also your interests, but you can't see it because you're the boss. In other words, everything must fall, which is the name of a beautiful documentary that some South African filmmakers made uh, a couple of years ago after what happened in um, in the University of Cape Town and then in South Africa as those students and, and folks who are organizers and intergenerational thrust said that, you know, Cecil Rhodes must fall. The statue of Rhodes at, at, at the University of Cape Town must fall. And I've told you that story many times. Every time we've taken students to, to, to the University of Cape Town or to, to South Africa, and we've stayed 
in college campuses. I like staying on college campuses uh, when we can't stay in the community. Uh, we ain't staying in hotels. No. Um, even college campuses are compromised, but at least we get to be around college students. And we go in August, usually go in July and August. Uh, and so we would go and that's wintertime there. So they'd be on break. So the only students who would be there would be a few students from the universities, University of Western Cape, University of Cape Town. Then we would go to Johannesburg. So Viswasaran, University of Viswasaran, uh, University of Johannesburg, and students who couldn't travel to their home countries, many of them from other parts of, of Southern Africa, which of course we know the British thoroughly occupied. So, um, but those students at UCT was like, yeah, roads must fall. And once they got that rid of that statue, they said, and fees must fall. Why? This tuition is out of, and sis, you clean up in the dorms, right? Bro, you cut the grass, right? Okay, your your salaries must rise. And then fallism became the word. And then it began to echo throughout the world, particularly the former colonies of England and the so-called mother country, the mother country. And uh, there was a book that came out uh, a few years ago written by a collective in uh, 2018, actually, um, Roseanne uh, Chantaluke, Brian Nwoba, and Athena Gassamo Nkopo. It's called Roads Must Fall. So ain't enough for the statue, we're gonna get the dude, Cecil Rhodes, that criminal who's still buried in Zimbabwe, which used to be called Rhodesia. The whole point is that what must be done speaks to using this moment, this cathartic moment now to continue to pour into these ongoing efforts that never went away. We've never stopped resisting. And the article I was going to uh, mention, and I'm going to keep probably searching around here until I might stray upon. Look at that. <laughs> Reparative histories, radical narratives of race and resistance. This is from Race and Class from uh, a few years ago, January, March, 2016 issue. The article I'm thinking about um, is by Anita Ruperecht. It's called, no, 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 not a need to Let me see. Oh, no, 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 even better. This is um, uh, Priyanka Vidal Gopal, Gopal. And she's writing an article entitled uh, Redressing Anti-Imperial Amnesia. And see, this is the thing. This stuff, because we're going to be inundated. We've already become inundated. In fact, I'm going to tell y'all a story in a minute about where I was yesterday. Let me see if I brought my newspapers. Yeah. These are the papers from yesterday, as you can imagine, from Friday, right? Here she go. Queen and spirit of Britain, really? You the <laughs> spirit of Britain? There she go. In her gilded cage. The world's most richest welfare uh, recipient. And she go, Financial Times. Now, you know the FT, when they do this, <laughs> stop the press of London paper. Queen Elizabeth, this yesterday paper. Right? I said, okay, see, I got it out y'all system. Right? All right, where today's papers at? Did I bring today's papers over here? Let me see. Yeah, here they go. It's today's paper. This is the New York Times, which, of course, we know is a, a British paper. I guess it is. It's New York, after all. York, as in Duke of York, as in James, uh, who was the friend of Charles, who got the property. Wait, what was, do you remember uh, now King Charles III's title before he, he's Prince Charles, but Duke of Windsor? Was it Windsor? Is it the House of Windsor or the House of York? I'm trying to remember. I think it's Windsor. Dutch maybe Windsor. Yeah, maybe Windsor. But he, here's, well, here he's the king now. Just to cover the New York Times. Child, Charles vows to serve Britain with respect in echo of his mother. Bruh, really? 
your poor cousins. I mean, it's it's crazy, right? Abraham Lincoln got his brains blown out at a play down there on 10th Street at Forest Theater called Our American Cousin. Talk about the British and the English. You got something? Now, here's the FT Weekend. This is today's paper. I shall endeavor to serve with loyalty, respect, and love. <laughs> Bruh, how many days, how many years you got in you? I don't know. Now, who come after him? I know y'all know because we know more in this world about the British royal family than you know about your own family. I was just going to be embarrassed. Like, I shouldn't even know. I think you're right about the whales, but I shouldn't know. I shouldn't care. I shouldn't care enough to know to correct. But then here's the crazy thing. I don't care, and I know. You don't Why care. Do you know? Why do it we ain't a matter of caring. It's a matter they put. This is what Ngugi's writing about in this book. He said they put our memories, they put their memories in our heads. He said that is the crime of colonialism. That's why catharsis is important because what we're trying to do is purge. We've been feeding on this. In fact, I don't know how the American Negro does it because we be talking about like 16, 19 projects. Hold on, let's see. hold on now. Hold on, hold on. What this what this lady is writing, what Gopal is writing, she's saying, you know, if you're gonna talk about a soul, then how do our values and your values, how can you commingle them? I don't know that that's possible. Oh, I'm looking for that other book I was reading from. Why are you doing that? Let me apologize. It's Prince of Wales. He's Prince of Wales. Yes. Okay. See, so that's good. No, that's good. Wales is one of Wales is one of the four. In fact, I was I'm gonna get to this in a minute. I was talking, I was listening to Parliament yesterday on this. It's very interesting. Let me read to y'all from Ngugi. Because I said York. So I'm that's good. And I'm you know, let me see. This is what he says. He begins the book. There are four essays here. This is a this is an essay that he uh writes based on a speech he gave let me in fact let me just tell you all the citation for this um let me see you he gave one at the university of nairobi one at harvard one at the makarewa university makarewa university in uganda his alma mater um oh okay this chapter is actually one he gave as a talk in 2006 up at in cambridge massachusetts and Gugi says this, Wayaki Wahinga, sometimes simply called Wayaki, is one of the most important figures in uh, Gikuyu anti-colonial resistance lore. Uh, Ngugi Wathiango is Gikuyu. We're going to come back to that in a minute. It's going to be important in a second. Uh, one of the leaders of the 19th century resistance against the British military occupation. And the British military, by the way, she's the head of the military, right? Y'all should get a little book called The British Army. A Brief History of the British Army, Jock Haswell. Or get any book you want on the British Army. And you talk about how brutal they are? We'll come to that too in a minute. She the head of the army. Catharsis. Now, Charles III is the head. Tradition, consistency. You have to continue this continuity. Remember what Holly Grima said? Holly Grima said, a people with continuity can never be colonized or enslaved. And that, that puts the American Negro on a real problem because we in the Frankenstein monster, the bastard child of Great Britain and the car crash between the British, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch. And, and so when we looking for our roots, we tend to go to the blues and humming and hanging and democracy. Because huh? we don't have a clear opponent. Race becomes the pole around which we come as opponents. But them very same Irish who have inherited, who have uh, adopted whiteness 
and use that to embrace a kind of anti-blackness because that's the way they can move up in this race-based project we call the United States. In the race-based project of the rest of Europe, the brain, the, 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 the Dr. Frankenstein who created the Frankenstein monster, the opponents are a little clearer, are a lot clearer. The colonial subjects have uh, their own pathologies, but the American Negro, this is why it's very difficult to us for us to think beyond this nation state because the nation part of it here, you know, they have so thoroughly mixed us up in it that we over here in the damn United States of America talking about the royal family. Why? Because our masters are still talking about the royal family. You know what I'm saying? It's a whole ass president of the United States and y'all got the queen and his and her son on the damn two straight weeks, uh, two straight days in New York Times and even the title New York come from your mom and them. Huh? But who's our mother? Oh, Harry Tubman, Sojourner Truth, yeah, Phyllis Wheatley. Before that, I right, look, man, we're Americans. <laughs> no problem. And Googie says, this brother was leading resistance against that British military occupation. He says he harassed British forces time and time again. In particular, he attacked Fort Smith and Dagoretti after the British broke the peace treaty he had agreed to and talked with the British colonial agent, Captain Lugard. Damn, Lord Lugard, so to speak. His his wife, Lady Lugard, Flora Shaw Lugard, wrote the, wrote what some people consider the first history of Nigeria. But since Nigeria is a made up country, like everything is a made up country, I suppose you could say she did a tropical dependency. Paul Coates brought it back into print with a forward by John Henry Clark many years ago, because this was one of the books where you like you want to learn Nigerian history. You didn't go to the uh, village. You didn't go to your grandparents. You went to your master the British and they put the school books in there and they said okay in the first two sentences y'all was wild ass savages and then they start to and then we came so in other words the African textbooks is a good book called history lessons I'm looking over there to see if I can see the uh the author it's on one of the bookshelves over there where they look at textbooks from around the world and this Europe puts its imprint in there so anyway I'm coming to the point now about how they put their memories in our heads and then we start thinking it was our memories, but the head is the metaphor and Googie is using his point of entry and he starts with Wakai Wahinga who is fighting the British until he, when they finally captured him. The British removed Wakai from his region, the base of his power, Wayaki rather, the base of his power and on the way to the Kenya coast, buried him alive at Kimbwizi head facing the bowel of the earth in opposition to the Gakuyu burial rights requirement that the body face Mount Kenya, the dwelling place of the supreme deity. Uh, There's a very famous book by Yomo Kenyatta, the first prime minister of independent Kenya called Facing Mount Kenya. Put a pin in that too, coming back to that in a second, that name, Yomo Kenyatta, but Facing Mount Kenya, where he talks about, to use our African studies framework, the ways of knowing of these people. Now, you know, when you talk about philosophy, this is one way of knowing religion, another way of knowing educational systems, another way of knowing all intertwined. We have to remember that in the West, they talk about individual philosophers, Socrates, Plato, whoever you want to talk about, Marx, whoever. When it comes to Africans, there's this huge debate in African philosophy. Can you talk about Yoruba philosophy or Gikuyu philosophy? In other words, the philosophy of an entire group. And there's a debate, you know, Henry Aruka and them sage philosophers. They say, no, look at wise people in those societies. You can pull them out. Um, 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 uh, short history of African philosophy. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. I use that book sometimes in my classes. Um, Barry Hallen, who was on faculty at Morehouse for many years, you know, he says, you know, 
you have to look at these are there values among these people that you can extract and say are values to the group well in the case of the gikuyu Yoma Kenyatta says, this is how our people generally look at the world, look at rites of passage, look at how you come into adulthood, look at how you move through society. What is your responsibility to society? In other words, the soul of our people. And he wrote a book called Facing Mount Kenya. Well, in the case of um, Wayaki Wahinga, he don't face Mount Kenya. The damn British buried him with his head facing the, the earth, buried him alive away from Mount Kenya. In other words, even in death, they killed, they murdered this man by putting him in the bowels of the earth face down. The Queen of England. The Queen of England. The head of the military. We're going to talk about the military in a minute as well, some more. And then finally, Ngugi says, similarly in Kossaland, Southern Africa. In Kossaland, the present day Eastern Cape of South Africa, the British captured King Hensa of the Kossa resistance and decapitated him, taking his head to the British Museum just as they had done with the decapitated head of the Maori king of New Zealand. It's a good, a whole bunch of good books on this. I would recommend for a more recent uh, listing of the crimes of Great Britain, Carolyn Elkin's book, Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. She goes chapter and verse through all their crimes. She's been on this path for a long time. I mean, there are a number of books, but I'm just mentioning this one. Um, and of course, at that British Museum that Dan Hicks calls the Brutish Museum, where they got the Benin bronzes, colonial violence and cultural restitution. We've talked about that before. And then, of course, uh, this is the book that Barnaby Phillips, that Brother Oz introduced us to, and I sent away to the UK to get it, Loot, Britain and the Brit and the Benin bronzes. It ain't just statues. It ain't just uh, textiles. It ain't just, they had heads in there. Ask, uh, ask them in Belgium about the Herrero. Namibian said, you gonna give us our people back. They cut this man head off and put it next to the Maori king in the British Museum. The Queen of England. The king of England. Yeah, own it. You're gonna own it today. Charles the third. We're gonna leave your mom out of it. Cause she now got some other things that she's gonna have to deal with on the other side, depending on who she run into over there. So, and we're not talking about beating up on anybody, not talking about celebrating. We're talking about catharsis. I like that word, catharsis, because the catharsis can be channeled into decolonizing modernity. And Googie gives us these two examples. He gives us these two examples as real life incidents that happen to African people, not unique at the hands of these invaders. And there were many different types of invaders, many different kinds, many different places. Um, there are any number of books that we can kind of get into that. And uh, if I can get my hands on one. Oh, I thought I had Wars of Imperial Conquest around here. Uh, I'll find it in a minute, I'm sure. But you can look at the litany of abuses from the Dutch, the Portuguese, the Spanish. but the British, man, them brutes, brutal. And what Ngugi uses this is, he says, the relationship between Africa and Europe is well represented by the fate of these figures. He says, a colonial act, indeed any act in the context of conquest and domination is both a practice of power intended to pacify a populace and a symbolic act. Remember the queen, the king, the regent, the monarch is a symbol. And Googie says also a it's, a, it's an exercise in power, get down or lay down, to quote Beanie Siegel out of South Philly. And it's a symbolic act. And Googie says a symbolic act, a performance of power intended to produce docile minds. He says the lynching of captive Africans in the American South, often accompanied by the brutal removal and public display of their genitalia, 
The strange fruits born by Southern trees that Billie Holiday sang about was likewise meant to instill fear and compliant docility. See, I love how African from East Africa quotes a song being sung by African from Baltimore to make a point about the global nature of colonial domination exercises in power and symbolic acts. I'm going to read a little bit more of this because I think we need to hear from Ngugi this morning as we talk about the Queen of England and her son, the King of England. And we realize that they still singing the song that uh, this uh, their, their, their American cousins turned into my country tears of the, you know, yeah, the original uh-uh-uh, let freedom ring. No, that's the cousins in the social structure. And then Negroes be singing up, singing it tears coming out their eyes and shit. hell's wrong with you they got that song it came from england and of course instead of that at the, at the end they say god save the king they made up they own they own tv now talking about how they had to change that word from god save the queen to god save the king and for the first time in most britain's lives no not all of them you got some people who remember before there was a queen elizabeth of course there was a king before her father we'll come to that in a second and Googie goes on and says, in, in 1900, Sir Frederick Hodgson, a British colonial governor in what was then the Gold Coast, demanded the surrender of the Sikadra. Sikadra. All, all the tree speakers here, please forgive me, tree speakers. And uh, because, you know, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but I, I'm going to use the phrase that anyone who studies African history and culture now, if you study the Akan, if you study uh, Ghana, the history of West Africa, or British colonial invasion, you probably don't learn the tree word. You learn the word the British called it, the golden stool. And Googie says, this was the embodiment of the Asante, Ashanti Sunsun, the Ashanti soul, and symbol of their nationhood, so that he might sit on it thereby triggering the great Ashanti colonial resistance led by Yasantehini, Yasantewa. Yasantewa was the queen mother of a region of Asante land called Ijiso, if I remember correctly. Sometimes I, I, when, I, when I say that, I think about Ijiso in South Carolina. So I, I sometimes conflate the two. Um, Adu Boahen, uh, the great Ghanaian historian, wrote an excellent little book on the Yasantewa War, 1900-1901 because her brother Prempe had been sent into exile by the British. They was good for doing this shit. They conquer you, they send you somewhere else if they don't kill you. And then Yasantewa led the resistance by rallying the Ashanti people, first meeting with her war council and telling them brothers who was like, maybe we should negotiate with the British. She said, ah, ye men of Ashanti. I never thought that I would see you on a day when you would refuse to fight for your king, for the Asantehini. But she said, have no worry though. Because in the morning, the women of Ashanti will be on the field to meet the British. And when we defeat them and come back here, you are not welcome in our beds. The famous speech of Yasantewa. The next morning, the entire Ashanti nation was on the, on the field. In other words, to fight the Yasantewa, queen mother. Now, Elizabeth the second had a mother that they called the queen mother. But what happened to your queen mother? And Googie says the colonial act, just like they cut off that man's head, they cut off your memory. He says the decapitation of Africa took place in two phases. The first thing was they took us in the diaspora away from the continent, away from our memories. Then they started planting. And then the second phase, which is ongoing and everywhere, beginning with the African continent, is they put their memories into our minds. So you know more about Elizabeth family than you do about your own family. Because their memories are your memories. Because that's decapitation. 
meditation. Part of catharsis is getting your head back. Because here's the trick. The trick is your head has been on your shoulders all along. That's why we're here. To remind you, you got a head. Huh? I ain't got no head. My head is in Bridgerton. Hey, hey, hey. No. Uh-uh. No. Well, my head is a black version of George Washington and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. I, 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 you got a head. And then you be like, oh, shit, I do have a head. What was I thinking? Right. Catharsis will lead. The, what are we going to do about this? Right. Come on now. This is the important first step is returning to that. And we don't start from scratch. What we realize, we've known we've had heads all along. That's where these emotions come up. They're not mixed emotions. We know how we feel. But that's why in this Africana Studies framework, we have a social structure. Who are we to other people? We got a governance structure. Who are we to each other? Because I guarantee you, I remember when Ronald Reagan bit the dust. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, on the campus of the University of Tennessee, uh, conducting a training with the Children's Defense Fund for the National Freedom Schools uh, movement that they run, CDF. And word came that Reagan was dead. And I'm sitting in the room probably with, I don't know, maybe 50 college-age students and maybe a half dozen elders. And at its peak, Freedom Schools at that point, the trainings would be several hundred students. I mean, I say several hundred, I mean like maybe four or five hundred students. And so I was running workshops all day, all day. Only break I had, we had break for lunch. When I didn't went to lunch, I went and, and got in the car and went looking for books. So as a bookstore in Knoxville, ain't there no more. Used bookstore, I used to love to go to. And I would go down there and shout out to the Children's Defense Fund. I was always glad to do that work with them. But I remember that day because uh, when we were wrapping up and as the news had come out, I had uh, said, Ronald Reagan is dead. And took it about 15 minutes to walk through the crimes of Ronald Reagan. Just got impromptu. And after we took the break, the elders were sitting there and went, you know how you know how elders are. These are sisters. The gesture. Okay. Uh-oh. That came up. These are children's defense fund at that time. Most of the freedom schools around the country, Philadelphia at that time, I think we probably had about 14 freedom schools, all funded by the school district of Philadelphia. But most freedom schools around the country run by churches because churches had the money to pay the students and you know bring buy the books for all the children, this kind of thing. These elders called me to the back, they've been sitting back there. I said, Oh, am I about to get beat up by these elders? Which, of course, it's always an honor to get beat up by elders. You got to listen. So I, you know, got on my knee, yes, ma'am. You know what they said to me, Professor Hunter? You know what? Thank you. Thank you. And then they started talking about how much they revile Ronald Reagan. But see, that's a governance conversation. We know how we feel. In this city, in the District of Columbia, in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, you pick up somebody at that airport with that R word on it, with that statue of him waving out front, Black people say, where are you flying into? I'm flying into National. They don't say the name. You understand? If you hear somebody say, if you hear a black person say the R word, you think, oh, you must not be from here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We don't say that name. And remember what these white boys did before this man died. Well, we don't know when he died because we was, in fact, that same time, we was laughing like, it, it, when did he die? Because well, ain't nobody seen him in years. He probably died years ago, right? They just announced it. Anyway, but the point is this. Uh, they passed that law because before Reagan, they said, you know, you have to be dead to name something for you. But then they passed a the federal law to let them name stuff for him. It's all kind of stuff in this city named for that man. But at any rate, what Ngugi is saying here is that, let me just 
tie this together right quick and then move back as we talk about this queen because this is Queen Elizabeth the second we talking about Charles the third you've seen the last one's name Elizabeth and Charles y'all think about that as y'all wear them North Carolina Tar Heels jerseys anyway mm. maybe you're a subject to yeah, the children of empire after all but um the reason I raise this is because Africans had royalty now the question of whether we should have royalty that's a different question the question of, in fact, there are a number of different books. This is a good one that I will mention uh, called The Politics of Custom, Chiefship, Capital, and the State in Contemporary Africa. This is edited by a husband and wife team in Harvard, John and Jean Komaroff. And some of you all know why there's a punchline in that, but I won't go into it right now, the Komaroffs. But it came out in 2018. And in the chapters, in the uh, 12 chapters of the book, they go through many different parts of the continent, South Africa, Ghana, uh, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, Burkina Faso, um, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique. And they talk about, the various authors talk about the fact that all these governance systems that were in place prior to invasion, many of them remain in place, but then a different relationship now with the colonial states, these settler states that these colonists put in, they did not settler states, although a lot of people did come and stay, hence South Africa, but these, these, these artificial states, and remember what our friend Howard French, who, by the way, I got a chance to, I didn't uh, go up and, and, uh, and, and greet him, I just kind of sat in the back, there's about a thousand people in his session on uh, last Saturday after we got off here and I ran down to the, um, to the uh, book fair, I wanted to see, you know, this magnificent uh, annual Library of Congress book festival. You know, certainly while the Librarian of Congress is Carla Hayden, our sister Carla, Hay Carla Hayden, and uh, uh, a colleague and friend of mine, uh, Dr. Lanisha Kitchener, who uh, Lisa is the director of the African and um, African and Middle East Division of the Library of Congress, Black woman. And um, by the way, they're going to be putting out an announcement for librarians. She was telling me, you know, we need some librarians, some more librarians down here. I said, you know, one thing I always love about the LOC, I got these black women. She said during COVID, a lot of them retired. So I'm just, just be on the lookout. I'll let y'all know when she posts. If you're a librarian out there, I know it's a lot of y'all out there in this, in, in, our, in our community. We've had those conversations even in Nubia on Monday nights, uh, please. So even beyond that, if you're looking here and you're not yet in Nubia and have not yet joined there, you know, just know that that's going to be coming. Anyway, Lanisa interviewed uh, Howard. And so it was about a thousand people there and they were talking about, uh, of course, Born in Blackness, his book. Very rich conversation and a very different conversation than the conversation that we've had with him, that you had with him, Prof, that I had with him, that we had with him when he came into Nubia. Very different kind of conversation because the crowd was different, much more kind of a social structure oriented conversation than the governance conversations we've had. And, and I said, I like to say, remember when Howard writes in Born in Blackness about the, the, the possibilities of these African social formations, African social structures, informed by African governance structures, who we are to each other as Africans and how that then empties into these rule-based state formations and how that was interrupted, perhaps even, I would say, perhaps even forestalled by the invaders. So we don't know what we would have come up with in Africa. We have clues. There were so-called empires, Ghana, Mali, Songhai, Kanem-Bornu, Monomotapa, you name it. Um, there were formations that we would recognize today, whether it be the Nile Valley, Kemet, Kush, you know, Aksum. There, and many of them were bloodline-based monarchies. 
right? But the bloodlines were also inflected with and shot through with, in many instances, different forms of consensus-based governance. This is what Chancellor Williams writes about in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, when he calls the African Constitution. And I'm going to pause here and not only acknowledge Chancellor Williams, who got his PhD, I think, in 1947 and 1949 from American University. And that shouldn't even have to matter. But I'm bringing it up because a lot of people who want to engage now in conversations around African people and talk about thinkers and writers and, and teachers and folks who are doing work, they want to segregate the people who white people don't recognize and say, well, those were people who had these fantastic ideas. And then turn their ass right around and be crying crocodile tears at a funeral for the queen of england <laughs> you have a head it's okay it's okay and guess what you can tell people all day that you feel seen but guess what the first thing is you need to see yourself and then you need to see us and we need to see you and then we see each other and you don't worry about what somebody else who ain't never recognize your humanity whether they see you or not because they ain't got no reason to see you, and you can nothing you can do to make them see you except act buck wild, and then when they fire you, you run off and talk about you a victim of racism. That thing will drive you crazy. See yourself, see yourself first. But at any rate, people like Chancellor Williams, Lerone Bennett, others, they will say, well, you know, they popularized it, and they no, no. Chancellor Williams wrote the destruction of black civilization, 1974. And the last chapter, which I want to say is chapter 25, but I'm no John Henry Clark. I could pull a right check. Somebody I check it. It's called the African Constitution. After this long volume, which was supposed to be a multi-volume work, but he was going blind. He was losing his sight. So he's writing fast. A summary of a lifetime of research. Parenthetically, that same trip when them elders told me that thank you for what I said about Reagan, because they want they was glad to see that could have that cathartic moment. We ain't celebrating the death, but uh catharsis. Uh, that was the same trip I got. I got in the car and went to the uh, went to the used bookstore and found a copy of Chancellor Williams' 1947 novel, The Raven. It's very kind of hard. It just made me think about that when I was mentioning Chancellor Williams. Anyway, the African Constitution. What he says is many of these forms of African social structure, and then Howard French is writing about it, of course, in Born in Blackness. One of many, as he said last week at the National Book Festival, and has said many times. He's just kind of bringing all the scholarship he get his hands on forward and then adding his own perspective and extending it. Many of those forms, yeah, you have a king and a queen, you got bloodline, but you also have the people choosing. So among the Ashanti, for example, the Santahini, the man is the king, the Santahini. I don't want to translate that into king necessarily, although we do it now for convenience. The queen mothers met to make that selection. So you ask where the power sits and they had regional queen mothers, regional councils, and you had situations where if you did not do the will of the community, the king can just say do stuff. The queen can just say do stuff. No, the people have to give consent and the people have to agree. If you are governing in a bad way that isn't uh, helping the community, you can be removed. You understand? The question of heredity becomes a question of defining the pool, not defining your capacity and your ability to do whatever the hell you want till you die. No, there would be no queen of England among the Ashanti. In other words, you don't get to just rule till you die. No, if you're messing up, we, we intervene and replace you. So people say, what is that? Is that monarchy? Is that democracy? So here you go trying to import our ways of knowing into your ways of knowing. They don't fit. And your solution usually is then to cut our heads off, meaning what? To educate our children like what we was doing with savagery and what you was doing to civilization. 
In fact, can we just talk about civilization for a minute? No. Are you really civilized? Right. Y'all killing people. Y'all bombing people. Grenada is a member of the Commonwealth. Remember when y'all invaded Grenada and, and you had these people, you fomented all this stuff this coup and then Maurice Bishop got took out and then the U.S. Marines got Margaret Thatcher on the phone with Ronald R. Word the whole time. And who was the queen of England? Oh, the head of the military. Then you Negroes run around and go to a movie called Heartbreak Ridge and crying crocodile tears for Clint Eastwood and Mario Van Peebles. This is the problem. When we don't have any independent memories, we start siding with people who are our open enemies, not because they don't recognize our humanity, but because they have a vested interest in pretending like they don't think we're human. Everybody know everybody is human, but you got to tell this lie to yourself. All right, so in Googie, is saying that to decolonize modernity, to decolonize this, we got to revisit all this stuff. Not only acknowledge that it happened, but seize the momentum of resistance. And that's what the that chapter is about. Then the then the, the final three chapters in the book. It's only four chapters, small book. But anyway, let me let me let me finish talking about his book with one final thing. Then I'm gonna go through very quickly in the outline of kind of some of the stuff that happened in the last 48 hours. I want to talk about a little bit for a minute. In Googie's first chapter. He says that resistance is about language. It's about culture. It's about your capacity to remember who you are. In fact, remembering becomes a central theme in this little book, something torn and new. Because he says what we are in this world now, African people, we're something torn and new. But the thing that we have been torn into and torn out of was a thing, which means it can be remembered. Remembering, he tells a number of stories. But the first story in the book, after he talks about these kind of Africans, is the story of Ireland. Because the Irish were the British colony. So when that thing hit social media the other day, and you see them people in the soccer stadium chanting, Lizzie's in a box. <laughs> did you see that problem? You probably played it, didn't you? No, I did not. You did not play it. See, because you got home training. So that's African ways of knowing, right? <laughs> I'm like, ooh. See, black people not, that's kind of gauche. In other words, ugh. Like them elders sitting in the back of that thing when I was trashing Reagan, and they were sitting back there as I subsequently realized, very happy, but they couldn't show it. <laughs> Let the young boy do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, because Lizzie's in a box, that's bad form. Or maybe not, depending on how Lizzie hurt you. Again, all the room in the world for Professor Ujo Anya at Carnegie Mellon and everybody else who lost somebody. Because again, as Chimamanda Adichie writes, and so many others, Chinua Achebe, and everybody else. So we talked about the Biafra War. I'm looking at one. Of the, I'm trying to look for one of the books I showed y'all uh, a little while ago, months ago. We talked about Biafra War, and maybe we should devote some time on that because there's a lot of people who bear the marks of that, who have relatives, uncles, aunts, friends, families, people who lost their lives. Three million. So I got all the room in the world for somebody like that. But, you know, they chanting Lizzie in the box. But what Ngugi reminds us is the Irish were the ones who were brutalized by the British. And they preserved their culture in many ways in the language. He writes about that. He gives that talk. And I won't uh, stop now to quote it. But he talks about how Europe plants its memories and how that European memory planting wasn't Europe as a whole, as one concept. It emerges out of conflict between them. Oh, he gets into all kind of stuff in this when he talks about how uh, Spencer, Edmund Spencer, the poet he calls, he says he wrote a, a, a piece called The Fairy Queen, right? Which, which Ngugi calls the poetic manual of English nationalism. He says Spencer's important to Africa because they put him in our mouths. He said, Ngugi said, they put him in my mouth. 
in East Africa. And Ayikwe Armad would say, he put him in our mouth in Ghana. He put him in our mouth in Nigeria. These are the texts that children of African descent had to learn in Africa. And then the American Negro goes into AP English and learns Beowulf, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. You a literature scholar, uh, Professor Honey. You went to school for, and you had to read all that stuff, but you didn't have to wait to college. They start putting that in your mind in elementary school. Negroes talk about King Arthur like they were there. Trying to fight with the King Arthur, have a black knight. Maybe we can make a black King Arthur. Or maybe you can go home and have your own stories. You know we got them. Do we? Yeah, you got a head. Oh, I have a head. I have a face. <laughs> As my friend Nzingo Radabisha Heru, once the president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, used to say, she said, when Roberta Flack sang the song, the first time ever I saw your face, Nzingo would look at us and say, the first time ever I saw your face ain't the first time you had a face. When you start letting other people <laughs> recognize your humanity and then you take their definition as if it were yours that's what Wade noble says the definition of power the ability to define reality and have other people accept your definition as if it were their definition so decolonizing modernity begins with the stop make-believe and so what ngugi talks about is that this type of training was about subduing the irish and then he gets into the whole all kind of stuff he goes from spencer to Robinson Crusoe, and we all know Robinson Crusoe, right? Well, guess what? You weren't Robinson Crusoe. You were Friday. <laughs> you had a name. You had a culture. You had a people. But when Robinson Crusoe saw you, that's when you came into humanity. So you worried about baby Archie. You worried about whether Megan Marple, whether she invited to the, did she come see the queen or Boris Johnson came? What you got to do with them people? In fact, the only reason we're having this conversation in English is because of their brutality. So anyway, the last 48 hours, let me get to that and help me tie some things together. The queen makes transition. And I had an odyssey. Yesterday, when I left the house, I had to go do a whole lot of stuff yesterday. So uh, first thing I went, I, I cycled through uh, Sankofa because I had to go on campus yesterday. Uh, and so I went by Sankofa, went to check on, check in with Haile Garima. And we were talking about Haile Selassie being in England and all of the impact there in the 30s, 35 to 41 is when he was in exile in England, even though the British working with his enemies, the enemies of the Ethiopian people, the enemies of East Africa, the enemies of Africans, the Italians at that time under Mussolini, although there are other Italians fighting that, but not enough because Mussolini was in charge and the English propping him up. We were talking about and of course, again, as I said, another emperor, right? We were talking about all the other Africans who were in London at the time, because London is very important, as those of you who are in England right now understand, in terms of this fight against this colonialism. So George Padmore, C.L.R. James, Paul and Essie Robeson were living in London. I think they were there from 28 to 39, which means they overlapped with High Selassie for about four years. And during that time is when they met these young students who were there, Yomo Kenyatta. Kwame Nkrumah, Nandi Zikiwe, the first prime minister of independent Nigeria. Again, Nigeria, a tropical dependency. Flora Shaw Lugard's husband, Lord Lugard, the one that was killing the South Africans as well. And then they put him in West Africa. Oh, that's a British story. But that resistance, Selassie's presence in England helped give focus to the resistance against colonialism. There was a cat from the Caribbean 
named, well, he named himself Ras Makonin, restaurateur, took money and helped support the Ethiopian war effort. Very important figure. George Padmore, very important figure. His book, Pan-Africanism of Communism, I'm looking over here on my shelf, uh, The Lives and Toils of Negro Workers. He's thinking about, they began to develop this notion that wherever we are in the African world, we are Africans and we must resist collectively, even as we support local and specific areas of resistance. Part Much of that is fomented, obviously in the diaspora, but England, in other words, people ain't lining up behind, oh, the queen, the queen. No, where are you, Selassie? Look what y'all doing. What, brother? Let's get together. These young people coming to Paul S.E. Robeson, giving them African clothes. Paul Robeson goes to school of Oriental and African studies during that period, learning African languages. He says, I'm an African, as Sterling Stuckey writes. I am an African. I want to be African. I'm from Jersey. My people from North Carolina, Caroline, as in Charles, Charles III, now the king of England. I want to be African. Damn Carolina, damn Virginia, damn New Jersey. And then appearing before the United States Congress, testifying, he says, my grandfather built this country, helped build this country. And I won't be run out of it by any fascist-minded people like you. That don't mean he's waving the American flag. Oh, no, no, this is a complicated conversation, trying to weave a concept of narrative. So I'm down there listening to Ali talk about this. We have a conversation. And then another young brother comes in, Ethiopian cat. So they switch to Amharic. They talking. And then they start laughing. And Haile says, yes. You're one of you're one of her subjects. I said, but y'all not subjects of the queen. Y'all Ethiopians. Y'all had your own beefs. Y'all fighting the Romans. <laughs> y'all wasn't fight who conquered the British. The queen ain't your queen. And then he said, yes, but this young cat had been in the U.S. Army, and he had gone to Afghanistan, and then to Iraq. He said, so you fed her children. You know who she, you know who, what he meant by that, right, bro? Tell me. The British Army, part of the uh, the coalition. And of course, Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, see, the British caused all kinds of problems. Remember, the British had Palestine. So we know Israel, except for the British doing what they did in the conflicts there, which side they picking? Constantly, the British involved. And anytime the Americans ride out, they go by and say, yo, you got the strap? Yeah, let's go. The British right with them. So let's be clear, every time. So Holly was clowning the cat, right? So I said, okay, I got to go, y'all. So I went to go get these newspapers from around the world. And I, there's, there's only a couple of places left in the district in the area where I can get like foreign stuff. And one of them is a place called the Newsroom over in DuPont Circle. It's a couple. Uh, she's from Central America. He is from East Africa. And he's Kenyan. So every time we go in there, I go in there, we talk shop. And I'm looking to see, I thought I had a bag with my man. If I don't have that bag over here, I'm going to be mad. But that's okay. Yeah. I, and I hear this chair squeaking too. It's about to give us, so I'm all right with it. Because there's a new there's a new journal that come out. cost me a pretty penny yesterday too. I'm like, man, $30 for this journal? But it came from the UK on Blacks in Britain. It's talking about Oluada Equiano and all, how the young people are seizing the art. It's an art magazine. It's really graphic arts. And so it's all these interesting pictures, how they remix and all this stuff. And Equiano, we'll talk about him in a minute, too. I'm going to talk about him. My, in fact, my brother, Hakeem Adi, I sent to the UK for this book. I'm going to show you all in a minute. But anyway, I'm sitting in there, standing in there, in the newsroom, getting these magazines, getting these uh, newspapers. And the brother there, he's Kenyan, right? So we started talking. He's standing there. His man is standing there who works with him, too, who 
distributes newspapers and stuff. The brother, his his man's is from Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. That's the French, right? That's what they call uh, um, direct rule. Colonialism, you know, the scholars like to divide between direct rule and indirect rule. Direct rule, they want you to believe in Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal that you French. You know, you like to drink the demi tasse and sit on the Champs Elysees and you know debate Jean Valjean. It's very nice. I've seen that up close in Paris. <laughs> and them Negroes, are you French? Anyway, <laughs> what the hell? The British, they had indirect rule, meaning what? The Paramount Chiefs, the Queen Mothers, once they tamp the rebellion, they don't get rid of the rulers. They put the rule, they leave the, they leave the traditional rulers in place. This is why the politics of custom books is so important. And then they um they have their governors and they have their, their networks, but you still gotta respect those traditional rulers because the people respect them. It's very interesting to see. Now, here we are talking about, who oh, the Queen of England, the King of England. Okay, what about the people all through the African continent whose traditions go back farther than that? Do you know them? Well, yeah, if you go, anybody in here right now who's kind of African, who's spending time in Africa, you know who they are. In fact, when we were watching uh, Aya Nelly and her family in Port Harcourt and then, you know, in a Pueblo town with the library, they had to talk to all the chiefs, her father, chief. They got chiefs, and you know what I'm saying? Queen mothers, they got they, they got to talk to the elders, right? Because those rulers, everybody's still in place. Now, of course, uh, when the funeral of the Queen of England comes on, some of them people are gonna be watching like that's their queen. Well, I guess technically is she still the queen of Nigeria? No, she's still queen of Jamaica. Anyway, but the point is this: I'm sitting here listening to these cats talk. And so I come in and I tell them, because you know, I, I go in there every couple of weeks, so you know, I know I know them, so we just laugh and talking. And my man's had a dashiki on yesterday. He don't always wear his uh, some African clothes. I said, man, I love that. He said, this is the real thing. I said, okay. I said, uh, I'm so sorry the loss of your queen. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I was telling all the Africans yesterday. I was having a good time. I'm so sorry. And all them Negroes from the Caribbean, too. The dean of chapel at, at Howard, Bernard Richardson. I saw him last night. Uh, his people from the Caribbean. I'm so, I'm so sorry the loss of your queen. <laughs> anyway, and it was just like, I'm so sorry the loss of your queen. And so, of course, She's our queen, too. We're all the children of empire, you know, because some of y'all worry more about her family than you are about your own. But uh, technically, she's their queen, right? So, and the brother said, yeah. He said, Kenya, Kenya will be the last to leave the Commonwealth. Then his man started laughing. <laughs> I said, so who's going to the funeral? I said, who's going to the funeral, man? It's going to be Ruto? He started laughing. He says, funny, you should say that. So he, he picked up his phone. He started scrolling through his phone. Now, y'all know, probably most people, if you don't know, uh, William Ruto defeated uh, Odinga for the presidency of Kenya. And Odinga called for a recount. They was in court last week, and they just decided, this week, and they just decided that Ruto is the winner. They just confirmed. This is like the fifth time uh, that, that, that Odinga has run for president of Kenya. Odinga was the second in charge under Uhuru Kenyatta, who was the son of Yomo Kenyatta, coming to Queen Elizabeth II in a second. Then, who's going to the state funeral? Is it going to be the outgoing prime minister? Because the new one gets sworn in on Tuesday. And so, it's coming Tuesday. Who's going to the funeral? Are both of them going? Because, you know, the Africans going to be there. Joe Biden said he going, of course, because that's his auntie or grandmother or something, I guess, because, you know, our American cousin. But the Africans going too. President Ghana, they put out the, okay, fine. 
Uh, Uhuru Kenyatta called the Queen of England a towering icon of selfless sacrifice. What? This is the Prime Minister of Kenya. Oh, but it gets so much better. I'm standing there. We're laughing. I love the fact that Kenyan, Cote d'Ivoire, African born in the United States, but in this moment, we brothers. Different experiences, similar common respect for each other in that governance formation. And I'm laughing right along with him. And then my man leans in, the owner, the Kenya cat. He says, you know, she was, she became queen in Kenya. Do you know that, Professor Hunter? Yeah, she was in a tree or something. <laughs> That's how they tell the story, yo. The tree house joint. This became the most famous resort in Kenya. February 1952, she and her husband, they are on tour of the Commonwealth. They're going to go to Australia, New Zealand, but they're going first to Kenya. They're in Kenya in the middle of nowhere, and there's a reason why they are in the middle of nowhere. We coming to that in a minute. Oh, before before I go, I, before I go, I said, but they still got y'all colonized. Ain't y'all still wearing them white wigs in court? So he pulls up the video to show me when they arguing over the disputed election, the, the lawyer for Ruto got this white wig on in the Kenyan court to argue the case. I said, yeah, man, look at y'all. He said, Kenya will be the last to leave the Commonwealth because it's deep in our brains. And then he started talking about how she was there at this treehouse resort, at this tree, this treehouse resort, which fascinated me. Oh, by the way, the treehouse resort and then the hotel she came back to, the hotel she came back to now is run by the state government of uh, Kenya and Kenyatta, the outgoing prime minister, used that as one of the state houses where he would do business when he was on vacation. But here's where it gets funny. I said, okay, let's do the math. That was February 52, right? Said, yeah. I said, wasn't Kenyatta, was Kenyatta in jail by then? He said, maybe, maybe he was. Yomo Kenyatta was jailed in 1952, who became the first prime minister of uh, Kenya, who as a student met Paul and Essie Robeson in London, who was there at the same time that Haile Selassie was there, having been exiled out of Ethiopia as the Italians attacking him and the British are helping him. Ha uh, Yomo Kenyatta, Jomo Kenyatta, was accused of being one of the leaders of the Kenya Land Freedom Army. He wasn't. The Kenya Land Freedom Army, many people here know, was known as the Mau Mau. These were the Africans in Kenya who were attacking the British. Elizabeth goes, Princess Elizabeth goes to Kenya against the advice of people saying, don't go to Kenya. They turning up down there. They cutting throats. They killing people. They jail Yomo Kenyatta. She becomes the queen of England same year they put Kenyatta in jail. He stayed in jail for nine years. The British are trying to put down a whole rebellion in East Africa when this woman become king because her daddy died. Queen of erasure. You got to think about that in the context of where we are today because this isn't brought up. Now, the real leader, one of the real leaders of the, of the Mau Mau, they eventually arrest. His name was Didan Kimathi. Didan Kimathi. This is a small book called the Didan Kimathi Papers. Um, this book right here, Maniawa Kenyati. This came out many years ago, but y'all can get your hands on it. There, there have been re reprints of it. I only bring it up because Kimathi was the real leader. They, they caught him and executed him. But 
it's important to understand that um, that Treetops Hotel and then the Sagana Lounge or the Sagana Lodge where she was uh, she went and when she heard the news when it was broken to her uh, by Philip. It's a damn shame. We know all these names. Why do we know all these names? My God. They, they almost canceled the trip. Then when she became queen, you know, her first trip outside of England was to South Africa, apartheid South Africa. Hmm. And the son of the man who was in jail nine years, jail for being suspected of trying to get the British out of Kenya, wrote his condolences and called her <laughs> a towering icon of selfless sacrifice. Your daddy went to jail for a decade. And she became queen while they was trying to kill him. They killed Lidon Kamati and so many others because the British, because the Kenyans wanted them out of their country. And you, sacrifice, bruh. Bruh. But this is where I would depart a little bit with my friends who would look to the archive for these stories instead of mouth to ear. I think a lot of people, this is an excellent book by Thomas Richard called The Imperial Archive, Knowledge and the Fantasy of Empire. This is about the British archives because the British kept everything. In fact, they had a stool pigeon who narked on Kimati and got his, he kept a journal and he kept field reports. They, this guy led them to where his stuff was in the forest. They got everything. They put it in the archives and it was embargoed till 2013 because the British didn't want nobody to look at it. The point I'm trying to make is they turned some of the stuff over to the Kenyan government. But the point I'm trying to make is people think in the archives is the story. There are stories in there, but the best archives on Africa aren't in Africa. They're in Europe. They're in Lisbon. They in uh, Rome. They are in Paris. They are in England. And the English meticulous. They are in Antwerp. You know, they're there they are they are in these colonial capitals, Seville. They got the archives. So if you want to do work on our people, the scholars say you gotta go to the archives. And when you go to the archives, you realize, well, y'all some fiendish ass. You lose your mind in the archives. But the Imperial Archive, this book, what it really what it really talks about is that by curating libraries, they curate the idea that the truth is in the library. Nah, truth ain't in the library. The empire is in the library. You even try to colonize knowledge, which is what Ngugi is writing about. And so when we look at the Queen of England, it isn't just a symbol. It is an, uh, an articulation of a relationship. Now, let, me let, me, let, me, let me finish this up. So sitting there in the newsroom, with the, standing in the newsroom with these brothers, we were having this conversation about colonialism. And the effects of colonialism and how so many people want to watch the funeral and probably Kenyatta and Ruto will go and they've been at each other's, uh, you know, back and forth. But then, no, Ruto was actually Kenyatta's man. The other guy, his father, Ogingo Odinga, a very important freedom fighter as well. But that's the whole story for another day. I mean, I know the Kenyans, I don't want to gloss that, but since we're talking about Elizabeth II. And so we're talking about colonialism. It was fascinating to be there with the conversation. So I get back in the car, I'm coming up Embassy Road. I want to see whose flags are at half fast. <laughs> whose flags are lowered? And I'm looking at all these countries from the Commonwealth whose flags are low now, half mast. Then I come up Massachusetts Avenue and on the left is the British Embassy. All these people in line to sign the book and then just, they got the camera, the press out there taking video and people reporting out there this is this is uh next to the naval observatory where the vice president lived now on the other side of the street is the south african embassy with the nelson mandela statue so i'm saying lord have mercy but south africa not in the commonwealth no more 
I look. South African flag, not a half mask. Look at that. I love it. So don't y'all now. I may go back over there today and say, uh, you took it down, didn't you? Mm-hmm. But while I'm riding, I'm listening to Parliament, the British Parliament. I'm listening to them pay tribute to the Queen. She's the first head of the army in over a thousand years to wear the uniform and actually be a soldier. She's a Scot. You know, uh, uh, Boris Johnson was, they let Johnson talk. Johnson ain't sound like that nut. He usually sound like, I saw her in her final moments. And in the time she exhibited the grace that I've known her to have through the entirety of my time as prime minister. And I, was very honored. And I'm thinking to myself, now, I don't know, was it a rumor that they didn't let uh, what you call go over there see her? Or did she even want to go? Well, Meghan Markle? Yeah. No, her and Kate, um, I think it was just the immediate blood family. Okay. Well, Boris Johnson ain't in the blood family. Interesting. So as I was listening, I was like, again, I'm listening to the part, I'm listening to him talk. Because this is the thing. I mean, you know this because, you know, obviously you have been a professor of journalism for so long and a working journalist for so long and, and a student of literature and narrative for much longer than that. I mean, if we rely on the people telling the narrative for the thing, we'll never know the story. I'm listening to Boris Johnson in Parliament talk about he was there, not at the death moment. So maybe there's a protocol. Of course, there's, there's always a protocol. There's three different plans. Brother Oz was telling us about it. Three different plans. We probably talked about that Monday. If she dies in Scotland, what she did. Okay, so they got three different plans, these secret plans to getting her back. But then he started talking about stability and continuity. Johnson talks about stability and continuity. And then this uh, member of parliament, Harriet Harman, gets up and she says, in 1952, women did not occupy the position that they occupy today. She was expected to be a mother. She had three children, two children and a husband. And women, and I'm thinking to myself, all them queen mothers like Yasantiwa, that y'all went out and tried to murk over the century of you trying to get the Africans to heal. Our story, not your story. All those queen mothers, all those women involved in rulership, all those women involved in deliberation and decision-making at every level of African social organization that was forestalled, like Harold French says, because you came in there and the British were the worst of the lot in many ways. Yeah, I, I, you know, but I understand you saying that because this is your queen. Now, if we listen to this, we got a problem. But she came to power. Let's just talk about that for five minutes. Let me put the timer on this because I don't want to spend, you know, royal family, I know because people are going to be watching this. So let's just remember, because the thing is, it isn't just Elizabeth the second or Charles the third, it is the concept that you don't have any memory. They put their memories in yours and then they keep telling the story to remind you of that by making you think you did nothing. Maybe you were waiting, maybe you had the silver service. By the way, if they pour in silver, that come from slavery. The big diamond, that come from slavery and colonialism. All the stuff came from slavery and colonialism that they celebrate. And so let's talk about Elizabeth um, because, you know, her daddy, George VI, was a great-grandson of Queen Victoria. So I'm listening to M.P. Harmon, and I'm like, you forgot Victoria? She the one with the most blood on her hands. If she was a woman, she was the queen to 1901, the 19th century. That's why they call it the Victorian age. But I understand. Go off. You do you. Because y'all talking about y'all queen, and she was here for 70 years, 214 days, and now you know it's sad. And okay, I understand all that. But her daddy, George VI, Professor Hunter, you remember, he wasn't supposed to be the king, right? Yeah, because he had like a side piece. 
her uh, his brother Edward the Eighth. Remember, he went to marry the divorced American girl. Right. And that was. And guess what? Many people saying, "Oh, I remember that," but you don't remember from reading your history book. You remember because they made a damn movie about it. I was gonna say, and I watched The Crown. Exactly. So why they keep telling us these stories? We ain't got one African version of nothing. But they keep telling y'all them stories, and you be praying they cast a black actor to be in the room. And Googie is like, they'll cut your whole head off by making you think you don't have no head. So absolutely, in fact, they made movies about the uh, Edward VIII and his John that he married. He abdicated the throne. Then his brother George VI came in. His wife is the one they call the Queen Mother, Elizabeth, the widow, because he died young. And that's when she gets the word in Kenya, she becomes queen. But they made a movie about her daddy's inability to give public speeches. Do you remember that, Professor Hunter? I vaguely remember it. Um, and I the movie that. called King's Speech. Yes, and it was it was Oscar winner. Exactly. That's yeah. the daddy of Queen Elizabeth II. Now I'm saying, why y'all keep telling these stories? Why? Because you're the only one with memory and your memory going to be our memory. You're going to put your memory in our head and we sit there and fall for it. This is very important to understand. George the sixth, the father of Queen Elizabeth, before he became the king, because his brother abdicated because when he spoke being her bloodline, he was the Duke of York. Old York. <laughs> Original York, I suppose. And so I'm listening to Parliament having this conversation, and I'm like, this is fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me to hear y'all talk about all this stuff. And so now I got a car. I'm at Howard. I had a gathering last night for a ritual that was an annual ritual for many years. My man, Dr. Mark Lee, who's no longer at Howard many years ago, he started a ritual every, um, not every perhaps, but most HBCUs have these beginning of year rituals. Spelman, they got a ritual. Winston-Salem State, they have a ritual. Tennessee State has a ritual. Different types of rituals. At Howard, they had rituals once upon a time, usually based around the dorms. And one of them was at Charles Drew Hall called the Burning of the Fears, the Sunday night before class started the Monday at Monday in August. Uh, all the men, uh, young men in Charles Drew Hall would come out, about 400 men, in a circle in the courtyard, and they would build a big bonfire in the middle of the yard, and every man would write on a piece of paper their greatest fear facing them before they went to school the next day, and they would burn the fears. It's called the Burning of the Fears. My man, Dr. Mark Lee, invented that around 2008, 2009, building on previous traditions. Well, they hadn't done it in the last probably six or seven years i mean the the, uh, the the dorms got handed over to some corporate people who ran the dorms and you know continuity again this is a problem but now they're bringing it back i was so happy so i had to come up there and support them myself dean richardson we up there i, I come sit with them i'm walking on the yard i hear all this music blaring chase manhattan was up there i'm like man you know i don't mess around with these cats but i'm coming for y'all these young brothers i'm gonna be there and so uh and my man getting ready to enter his senior year sean ali mickens who is like the great nephew of Muhammad Ali, he himself from Louisville. He, I said, Sean, Sean is take is taking an extra semester. He'll be graduating following summer, uh, because he took a semester out of school because he was on the streets of Louisville every day down there with Tamika Mallory and them. And of course, he's from Louisville, so I mean, confronting the police after um, Tamika. I'm sorry, Tamika. I'm saying after um, Breonna Taylor was murdered. So Sean was one of those young leaders down there. I, was, I hadn't seen Sean since COVID. I was so happy to see him. It's my man. And so at any rate, we're all there. And as I'm walking up, I look at the flagpole. Why is that flag a half mast? 
I started to get mad and I thought, no. So did Biden tell everybody to take the U.S. flag down? The half mask? I don't remember. I didn't even look it up because I don't care. Because I just assumed that Howard did whatever the feds did. And so I'm like, wow, the children of empire, the children of empire, the children of empire have conflated the Anglo story with our memory, because there is no American story without the British. But the American story becomes capsized by the British. The waves of colonialism are clear. The Spanish frame the modern world. A lot of people who are racist against Hispanics, Latinx, Latinos, whatever they call and all the derogatory names. Some people speak Spanish, but Spanish was not their original language. In fact, there are many indigenous languages still being spoken throughout this hemisphere. But Spanish was the first assault. Spanish had a similar and a different type of assault. Portugal, yeah, too. In Brazil, you know, they're going to have an election. Lula da Silva looked like he's going to win this thing. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But in the process, when the British come, they come up fast. So the first wave is really the age of Spain, Portugal, too, but Spain. Then, you know, France, obviously. Haiti, of course, Guadalupe, Martinique. But when the British come in, they are particularly brutal. So when Victoria is on the throne, and they are going running through southern Africa. Dr. Clark used to always tell us, read uh, uh, Churchill's The River War. Read about when he was in the Sudan and in southern Africa. And of course, we remember the famous, uh, the, famous uh, the, the slaughter of southern Africans, the Indebele, about 1,500 of them slaughtered in 1893. The fight where they slaughtered the Zulu and all this kind of thing. And that was because of their weaponry, Hiram Maxim. The Maxim gun, 1884, I think it was. And they had a poem that they used to say, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. Machine guns. So they coming at you with thousands of people and you just mowing them down. <laughs> Murderers. Legacy of violence, as Carolyn Elkins talks about. And you did that all over. Now, you won't find that in the paintings of British heroism that hang in the British Museum and hang in the art galleries and come in the movies. Why? They want you to think they were individual heroes. So when Africa Bambada is sitting up in New York watching Michael Caine and them in the movie Zulu, where it looks like all oh, these Africans came and then these brave British soldiers, you the invader and where's your Maxim gun? Oh, we ain't gonna show the Maxim gun. We fought them hand to hand. You ain't kill all them people with one gun and one knife. You kill them people because you murderers, you slaughterers. And the head of state, your monarch, is the head of the army too. So all of this violence, this legacy of violence is very important to note. So I'm looking at this flag at half mass and I'm saying at some point, when does the African in the United States begin to re-examine our relationship to this mythical narrative? And I don't mean just re-examining in terms of like a 1619 project to say it's complicated, America did it. No, okay, fine, accept everything. America, yeah, is based on enslavement and they ended this because of that and all this kind of thing. Now, what's, now, now what does that bring you to? Well, we must live up to the promise. No, see, here we go. You went right back into fantasy. You plowed all that brilliant analysis back into a fantasy. Meanwhile, your people are getting slaughtered all over. They telling you roads must fall, Cecil Rhodes, Southern Africa, British. You cheering a Rhodes scholarship. Guess what? We're at an inflection point now. The Queen of England is dead. Long live the king. Okay. 
But while we talk about law, live the king, as we wind to a close, let's renegotiate. As my man, I remember being an undergraduate. <laughs> I went to a banquet. I don't even remember what it was for. Brother used to run Upward Bound in some student programs at Fisk University for many years to grade Linwood Berry. Linwood was a fixture at Fisk. If you were a student in trouble, you went to find Mr. Berry. Berry is, Linwood is at this banquet. We all in there. I'm a kid. I don't know why I was old, 19, 20 years old. We sitting there and they giving out awards. And you know how we do. We give an award to everybody. So-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Linwood getting hotter and hotter. Because he know the history of everybody in Nashville. He'd been at Fisk forever. He know Tennessee a and Tennessee State history. You know, he's an old track man. So he knows all the athletic history. He's in there listening. He's a little dude. So then they call somebody, this, this last person, and I will never forget this, even though it has been what, almost 40, 30 some years. Oh, and now we would like to recognize Miss, whatever her name was. Linwood stands up. Yeah, There's probably a couple hundred people in the back. What'd she do? <laughs> what did she do? And people say, Linwood, sit down. No, I want to know. What did she do? <laughs> I don't know. What did she do? Queen, Vic uh, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth II. Is it disrespectful to ask what she did? No, it's not. But at some point, we have to draw a line. We have to say, as this pageantry is almost upon us and people are going to stay out of school, people are going to be watching TV like it's one of their relatives getting buried. And No, what did she do? Because guess what? While we are talking about that and the queen's role as head of state, where she doesn't get involved in politics, head of nation, where she is absolutely the soul. And as Boris Johnson said in Parliament yesterday, this question of continuing continuity is how you continue. Well, he didn't say it's how you continue to have culture, but it's certainly what you do to continue culture. We have to then ask ourselves, what is going to happen at this moment? Because now we've got a transition. Charles has said he loves, you know, his son, his daughter-in-law and his grandkids. That's great. So people are saying, see, it's going to be all right. What, is it going to be all right? The Commonwealth, Prof, how did you handle the Commonwealth yesterday? You say you named them all. Oh, yeah, I just went down the list. And, uh, you know, when they say the sun never sets on the British Empire. Yes. Uh, so my question was, you know, as we've talked frequently in here about Barbados and now Jamaica and Nigeria uh, with its edict to throw out all advertising that is not in Nigeria. There's no yes. awakening. I feel like there's an awakening, but it's time. And you just said something about Kenya. I was like, what is it going to take for you to start to remember that you have a head to your point? What is I it going to take? It might take momentum. I think it's going to take some momentum. In other words, and that momentum may be upon us that goes, takes us all the way back where we started in terms of your salient, in fact, the question, how do it free us? Oh, by the way, how do it free us? How do it free us? I think, Prof, can you look this up? Okay. She would slap me on the back of my neck. When was Sonia Sanchez born? Uh, oh, let me find out. It might be today because she is a Virgo, September 9th. <laughs> no, yesterday. Yesterday is her birthday. Yep. That's what I thought. I don't have her volumes right here next to me. I got one. I'm talking about the Nation of Islam up there. Oh, by the way, I want to mention the passing and transition of we talk about. Yes, I, we, I wasn't going to let you leave here without Bernard Shaw getting his. Last oh, yeah, yeah. We should talk about we absolutely Bernie Shaw. Did you know him? 
I did not. I did not. I was a little girl when he was on CNN. Of course. And he retired like 20 years ago, huh? Yeah, I think so. But, you know, it was inspiring because I, I just remember, you know, and, and I said this yesterday, wasn't just that he was black I and mean, he looked something like my daddy, but uh. the, the, the presence that he, you know, was not like he was a black, you know, journalist. He was the voice of CNN. He was the anchor of CNN. He was, he was that, that, you know, that person that went out and covered wars. It was, it was not, Oh, like, and he, and he happens to be black. So it was like for the first time, not the first time, because I'm sure Max Robinson, I mean, it's like there's been people, you know, but for CNN, which was a burgeoning network to have this man as the face of their, their network. And for them not to spend a whole lot of time outside of Wolf Blitzer, honoring this man as they head into, I think, their absolute demise as a network. <laughs> How about that? And and by the way, thank you for getting out ahead of it, because what we're doing right now, this is the present. It ain't just the future. And they scrambling to get over here. But once you get over, it's the Wild West at this point. If you ain't got nothing to say, nobody watching you. It's something in to watch them implode like that. So you think this is the, this is their moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, but I think it's them. It's the moment for all cable news. You know, it's the moment for all cable news uh, as it's, it figures out, you know, Bernie Shaw, a disciple of, of Walter Cronkite, who I grew up watching because, you know, there were only three channels when we were coming up. I don't know which channel you watch, but we had to watch CBS in my home. And it was y'all CBS people. Yeah, we remember where, where as, as David uh, Brinkley, was it David Brinkley for you? It was, Brinkley, it was Walter I don't Cronkite. remember. I remember Huntley and Brinkley. I do remember them. Uh, actually, I have a vague memory as a child when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. I don't think we were watching as Gil Scott Heron called him, Walter Concrete. But he was, uh, he, he was very, he was very well. So yeah, that's right, huh? He was a protege of his. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I think those days need to come back. I was watching Richard Engel, uh, a correspondent, uh, NBC correspondent, not roast the queen, but tell the truth about the queen. I was like, oh, okay. All right, white man, you about to, interesting. I like it. But I feel like there's these moments where if, if, and I always think like, who are the powers that be? You know, we talk about these powers that be. Are we the powers that be now, Dr. Yeah. Carson? Yeah. We yeah. might be the powers that be. And so like, yeah. I'm not, it's, it's time for the powers that, the true powers that be to step into, you know, uh, the positions to actually set the framework for what needs to happen next and stop following the, the bouncing ball and following these, these people who will lead you right into a brick wall and over the cliff, like those pigs that the demons went into. And I feel like it's time for mm. us to you know, um, remember who we are, know that we have a head and, and proceed accordingly. Um, yes. stop, stop following the lead of people who only meant for you to be in bondage, who only meant for you to be something to put their feet on their knee on. Yes, absolutely. 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 See me like me validate me. Oh, you got a contract for me. Oh, I can't wait to come on and, and, and talk that talk on your network because now I'm valid. Right. Nah. Like, don't don't do that. Like, well, nah, 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 nah. nah. No question. Rose Price, nah, nah, nah. I mean, wow. I mean, yeah, I, I, I just remember reading, you know, Bernard Shaw, Bernie Shaw, interviewing Martin Luther King as a young reporter, working his way up. And like you said, for them not to center him, being the fact that he built their brand so to speak, and then walked away from it 
to spend time with his family. And because um, at least he is quoted to have said, and, and Rome Martin was bringing this up the other night too. And he played a clip of him. I don't know. Well, he was at the, I guess the National Association of Black Journalists. They gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. And he was roasting white dudes. He was like, the world does not look like y'all. You are a fraction of the world. He says, you need to understand. I mean, I'm like, damn, Bernard Shaw said that? Yeah, he was retained. In fact, Gwen Eiffel, the one presenting him with the award. And I think about you, obviously Gwen Eiffel, you know, now an ancestor, uh, sisters who are still around, whether it be Dorothy Gilliam or um, um, what's her sister? Charmaine Hunter Galt, you know, that generation before you, I'm saying, you know, and here we are when their whole model is eroding and people are turning to anybody with an uplink for news. Well, but you're a comedian. <laughs> well, you no, but, but you're, okay, that's cool. We can get opinions, but Wait, and now they putting you on to talk to comment on the new no journalism is the crap. I know I, how you how you wrestle with that with your students. I can't even imagine. Every day, I, I just say every you know every year I'm like reexamining my my syllabus. Every mm. year it's a new syllabus. Mm. Yeah, we spent the class talking about the queen. I have a young student uh, from Malaysia originally. So so then I was like, okay. Uh, so we we went around the room. Like, what does she mean to you? Raise your hand if you care. That she died. Only one person raised their hand. Wow. One, one, and this is a you know Christian missionary. So you know it's the humanity. I was like, I get that. You know, but why don't you care? And you know, and it's about this thing. And these young people are not here for the the narrative anymore that we have to worship at the feet of these people just because they have a crown on their head, just because you told us to. We know what they did. That's and right. we're, we're not going to be silent about it. And just like now we're coming up on Indigenous Peoples Day in October, which for my entire school life was Columbus Day, things are changing and you either will accept the change or become a dinosaur. And, mm -hmm. ice, you know, the ice age is here. But it's, it's, not, it's the sign, you know. Now the fire next time, right? The fire next time. Well, I mean, as they would say in the nation of Islam, it's the shock of the hour. People who are not paying attention are gonna be shocked by what comes next. But it's right there in front of us. Um, and I do want to mention, of course, uh, last week, uh, uh, Minister Dr. Abel Muhammad became an ancestor very young at seventy-one. Uh, watched the minister, watched Louis Farrakhan uh, um, at her uh, janaza. Her service last week at Mosque Minoriam there on the south side of Chicago uh, delivered remarks. Her daughter, Sherelle, one of our students, and to her, her father, sister, the family, we give their great, we, we, we elevate the name of your mother. Um, may Allah be satisfied as she continues her journey. Um, just a beautiful service and, and a lot of wisdom there. And, and I did not know Ava Muhammad well, but I've known her for a long time. She's from Columbus, Ohio. In fact, we set off a firestorm because I was president of the Black Law Students Association the year that uh, I wanted her to come. And we uh, persuaded Balsa to invite Abel Muhammad. And she was our banquet speaker at our end of year ceremony. As you can imagine, it caused quite a stir at Ohio State School of Law. But of course, didn't care then, don't care now. Abel Muhammad, very important sister. Um, by some accounts that I've read and have heard, she was the first woman to lead a mosque in Islam. Um, of course, the Nation of Islam, you know, some people say they're not Muslims. Well, you know what? Everything is up for interpretation. They Muslims, as far as I'm concerned, they're the Muslims I know, in addition to all the other Muslims. But 
Yeah, it just it made me think of Nation of Islam, and of course, Sonia Sanchez at one one time was was a member of the Nation of Islam. But you know, one of the legacies of Empire, we as the children of Empire, we're having this conversation in English. Our colonial experiences in a social structure to run through quickly in like a couple of minutes, and so the social structure we live in in the last several hundred years have been the age of Empire, the age of Spain and Portugal and France, the age of England, and then the age of the German attempt to jump the front of the line, which caused two wars between all them Europeans dragging us in. And in that moment, everybody they tried to subdue started breaking out of that old world system. So about the time that Elizabeth II came to the throne in 1952, that process was underway. And while she became queen in a colony, it became a country shortly thereafter. And the man that was in jail when she got the news that she was queen became the prime minister of that country. And he had met Paula S.E. Robeson in London, the place where she stayed for most of the time she was the Queen of England. And in that same city, those Africans who continue to struggle to this day, and there are a number of little pieces, and I would show you all some of these, but I'm not going to stop now to start pulling books. I'm just going to summarize this. The social structure we live in, and we're going to talk about this Monday night. I can't wait for the African world to convene in office hours, and we can really get through this so we can hear some folks who are in England, some folks who are in Nigeria, some folks who are in Ghana, some folks who are in the various islands of the Caribbean, which I'm going to end with in a moment. The governance structure of the age of uh, Elizabeth II, we fought for unifying moments, these pan moments, pan-Africanism. We were not all together. When we were on the continent, we were pulled into a trauma, but that trauma did not result in us losing complete sense. This is what Ngugi is saying. We must now embrace knowingly is remembering. We're remembering something that wasn't together. We were forced into togetherness by these people. We can talk to each other in English because these brutes went all over the world. They do not have the finest music. They do not have the finest traditions or cuisines. When you're chewing on fish and chips, and not even good fish, cod or whatever. The point is, <laughs> you're not going to English for fine dining, but you will go because they had an empire and they brought all the stuff they didn't have to them. You understand? That's why they, that's why they love Christopher Marlowe so much and love Shakespeare above all, because he elevated their language. And now people think that the, of the British as having this beautiful poetry and language, and they made human contributions, but understand in the rankings of peoples of the world, they, did, they weren't even on the map. Go ask Caesar and them. But the governance formations we have have been formed in many ways by the resistance to empire. So the age of Elizabeth II is also the age of resistance to empire, the age of African independence, the age of colonial fights to get out from under the thumb of the British in the Caribbean, in India, in Pakistan, as, as they left they started strife or exacerbated strife that continues to this day. The Palestinians continue to fight for self-determination in a place the British were in control of. You go into Africa all over, not just Southern Africa, not just West Africa, not just East Africa, but North, uh, Northern Africa. Read, uh, read mm, David Levering Lewis's book, The Race to Fashoda. Read about the Sudan. Don't just read Winston Churchill. Read what they said. Read about the Mahdi. Read about the Fuzzy Wuzzies in Somalia. Read about what they did in the United Arab Republic. Or the United, yeah, what's now called Egypt. This is a very important conversation. Now, of course, in terms of ways of knowing, and you mentioned this when you talk about Christianity, uh, Professor Hunter, you know, what ways of knowing did they interfere with with us? All of our different African ways of knowing that we have never given up, but they exist now underneath 
They exist now as a as a as a strata somewhere that has been morphed, something torn and new, but still there. But the British forced into our mouths, as did the French and the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British forced into our mouths national identities. So that now we long for an identity in the American Negro, worst of all, because we don't see no roots. So we trying to crawl back to George in Washington and say, me too, me too, mm -mm, wrong me too, wrong me too. Mm -mm. Anyway, uh, the language that we're using to have this conversation, English, brutal. How has this become globish, to quote the title of one book on the subject? How does English become the world language? Brutality. I didn't even get into the enslavement process. Maybe we talk about this, uh, Joseph Inacori, one of the best books. I love this book, Africans and the Industrial Revolution in England. Joseph Inacori, the Nigerian economic historian, where he writes and he says in this book, among many, 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 many other things that, you know, migration is the central theme in human history. People move. But when you migrate, you know, the ability of things that we call countries now, countries, people call nations, countries, the power of England became in its ability to utilize what it was profiting on from the enslaved labor of Africans to begin to build its industrial core. And then with surplus populations, beginning actually with those uh, people they put out of England and sent to the colonies, economic enterprises to take it all the way back to the Virgin Queen and Carolina and those places and Massachusetts and, and, and Plymouth Corporation. Exporting people becomes the way they build empire. So they send these people out. They're bringing disease. They're bringing guns. And between that, Jerry Diamond, guns, germs, and steel, and whatever, however else you want to put it, it becomes a moment in history when the whole globe, we hadn't talked about China. Because again, we talk about Hong Kong. We talk about yeah, Taiwan. We talk about China. This is the age. Elizabeth is in the middle of that. The last 70 years, 214 days before she drew her last breath on this side. This whole process of exporting people, as Inacori writes, becomes a way that you build. So England built itself in some ways by importing all that stuff to build the internal mechanisms and exporting people. And here we are speaking English in 2022, the year of our Lord, whatever that means. And of course, that's in Latin. But the uh, the ways of knowing that we use even to resist have been commingled with these settler ideas, including their religion, their educational system. So, yeah, they don't send all the tests away to England to be graded now. But do they need to send them away in the Caribbean and in Africa, although they still send a lot? The whole point is the idea is now indigenous to those places. So to be the best is to be trained by the British. My God, Negroes hacking high tea and sitting up under white wigs in court. The brain. The last three categories, science and technology, of course, we talked about the maximum gun, but the technology of death, the technology of violence, the legacy and the technology of violence. How do we engage with each other when we force ourselves into each other's minds through manipulation of social media technology? that doesn't take the time to be thoughtful. And there's a lot of resistance technology. This is one of them, what we do every week. We have to understand in that science and technology category in our Africana, uh, Africana studies conceptual categories that we must think about science and technology in terms of how we used it. Duz Muhammad Ali in England, apprenticing Marcus Garvey, another subject of the crown from Jamaica in London and newspaper technology using newsprint, then radio, wasn't just a king speech, it was our speech. When you hear Garvey, Marcus Garvey, fellow citizens of the world, 
the 400 million Negroes of Africa, the Caribbean, the Negroes of the United States, and together we make the call Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. That's a broadcast, a recording that becomes a broadcast and then movement and memory. How do we remember these moments? The commingling of movement and memory is important because the continuity Boris Johnson talking about ain't your continuity. So when they carry the queen off to be with her parents and to be with her husband's remains, the queen of England, you're not buried there. Your man got buried upside down with his head facing the earth away from his sacred mountain. Your man head was at the British Museum. Your woman's uh, vagina and body parts was in formaldehyde jars and the rest of her body mummified on display in France until the South Africans said, you are bringing her back and we're going to give her a royal head of state funeral for a national hero, Sardi Bartman, the name you gave her. We don't know her Casa name, but then you call it a Venus Hottentot. We don't forget. We too have a continuity and it doesn't begin with your invasion. No matter what them school books you still teaching our children to read, say. We must step in and finally movement in memory. We must remember the battles. We must remember our victories. As we mark this, we must think about that. You will not erase us. We're not the children of empire unless we behave that way. And so I'll end with this poem from Sonia Sanchez. She wrote this to Malcolm. This is in Margaret Burroughs and Dudley Randall's edited volume for Malcolm X. Poems on the Life and Death of Malcolm X. Broadside Press out of Detroit. Um, these, this is a very precious, uh, uh, very precious volume published in 1969. Sonia Sanchez, happy birthday, Sister Sonia. I'll say Mama Sonia, but she, everybody call her Sister Sonia. Because that is, you've been the guiding light. You continue to guiding light in this work. How do it free us? She says, do not speak to me of martyrdom of men who die to be remembered on some parish day. I don't believe in dying, though I too shall die, and violets like castanets will echo me. Yet this man, this dreamer, thick-lipped with words, will never speak again. And in each winter, when the cold air cracks with frost, I'll breathe his breath and mourn my gun-filled nights. He was the sun, that tagged the western sky and melted tiger scholars while they searched for stripes. He said, F you white man, we have been curled too long. Nothing is sacred now, not your white face, nor any land that separates until some voices squat with spasms. Do not speak to me of living. Life is obscene with crowds of white on black. Death is my pulse. What might have been is not for him or me, but what could have been floods the womb until I drown. Sonny Chanchez, Malcolm. Queen Elizabeth, wherever you are, my only wish for you is that the reckoning that's going to face your son as those countries in the Commonwealth, the 14. Start deciding. They're already making noise in Jamaica. They're saying that when the new king come in, their constitution may require a referendum. They already wrote it in their thing. Understand the Commonwealth is 14 countries and those 14 countries, Barbados already gone. They're a republic. Bye-bye. See? 
Jamaica might be not too far behind and them other countries are already considering it. Believe they're looking at the constitution, trying to make a decision. People, Now there are many more countries in the, the Commonwealth of Nations. That's a voluntary association, has no power. And in that voluntary association, the um, Commonwealth of Nations, they elected Charles as the head again, uh, I think 2018, but ultimately the Commonwealth is going to come to an end. And if my friend thinks that Kenya will be the last, it won't be long before they leave too. The world that Elizabeth II occupied, that world is gone. It wasn't here long, and it ain't going to be here much longer in terms of the remnants. So Charles, you may preside over the end. Mm. And for everybody who, when um, they heard the news uh, of the death of the queen, thought it was this one. Uh, <laughs> that was my favorite one. I mean, that was my favorite thing I saw on social media. Do you remember that? What was it? What did the girl say? I'm trying to remember what she said. What? Uh, oh, I told my mama, uh, did you hear about the queen? And she said, what What happened to Queen Latifah? Yes. <laughs> yeah. that's, Perfect. Governance structure. structure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that note. Queen died. Latifah. Latifah, yes. Uh, Latifah lives. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. They put out a statement. So she said, we still got our queen. Uh, oh, they put out a statement. We still got our queen. Gotcha. And uh, thank you for this. This was very, um, I have to sit with this. I'm going to have to come back and rewatch it. Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. So grateful to you. You got to rewatch something that came out your head? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, because now I got to sit and think, because we're going to talk about it Monday night. I'm looking forward to Monday night, because now the world, you know, we got a whole global. Uh, Armenia, we got South Africa, of course, London, Nigeria. You got yeah. Ghana. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean. But we'll get the real time report. Love you. Love you, too. Love you, too. Everyone, have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. Yes. We'll see you in them Nubian streets. <laughs> <laughs>